I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. That's where we find ourselves this morning as we continue our study through the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 5, we'll be reading the entire chapter, all 12 verses. You can follow along your copy of God's Word. I'll read out loud. If you don't own your own Bible, as always, at the end of the service in our welcome area, please, we would love to give you a copy of God's Word, a physical book, the Bible, so that you could take home with you. Um, but we, we have been, and for those of you who might be visiting us, we've been working through the book of 1 Samuel, chapter by chapter. This is how we do things at Providence Road. So let me read. 1 Samuel chapter 5, this is the word of the Lord. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines, they took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon did not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod till this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. He terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistine and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors and the cry of the city went up to heaven. May God bless his word this morning. One of the ways in which I prepare to preach a sermon is what I learned from an author, pastor, theologian, Brian Chappell, that I am looking for the fallen condition focus. That we're looking for the unchanging truths about the fallenness of man. The fallenness of man, the sinfulness of man found in the text, but the fallenness of man that is also true of us in our day. 
If we could find what is the problem in the heart of man in the text and relate that uh, to the problem of the heart of man in our day that doesn't change, then we could find in God's word the remedy for that condition. And ultimately, it's the gospel. And the one truth that is evident in this story about the heart of man that is true about the heart of man today, it is this. And man thinks that he could defy God and get away with it. Man thinks that he could defy God and get away with it. We've seen this in Israel. Israel, in the text, in this story, they have the knowledge of the one true God. They've experienced the power of God, the holiness of God. But yet, Eli and his sons, the high, the high priest, excuse me, the priests of Israel, those who were meant to be the holy men of God who would intercede for God's people were corrupt, irreverent towards God, and somehow they thought that they could get away with it. Or how we see in chapter 4 how the elders of Israel, after losing the first battle against the Philistines, they decide to convene and to exercise their human wisdom. And their, and their wisdom was what? To go back to Silo, to take the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and bring it to the battlefield like a rabbit's foot, a lucky charm of some sort, so that in the fact that the ark would be among them, that somehow then they would have victory over the Philistines. Oh, man thinks that they could defy God or do with God as they please, and they think that they could get away with it. Or how about the Philistines who knew about the God of Israel? For in the previous chapter, they talked about their time in Egypt, how this powerful God had delivered them from the Egyptians, the greatest army the world had known. And how the God of Israel was with them in the desert for 40 years. And the story that they knew about Samson, this deliverer that wrecked them that day when Samson tore down the Philistine temple and killed so many of their leaders. And yet in their defiance against God, in our story, we find that they beat Israel and they have the ark. They think they conquered God. They think that they have defied God. Oh, nothing has changed in thousands of years after this event. Man is still the same. The same fall, the, the same sinful predicament that is found in these people in our story is the same sinful condition found in man today. Oh, in the West, most people in the West have a notion of who God is, the God of the Bible. Oh, most people in the West have heard of the Ten Commandments, have heard of the power of God, have heard about what he has done, have heard about Jesus. We wear them on our chains, crosses, or put him on our walls. They've heard about heaven and hell. Oh, they have information, they have knowledge about God. And yet, they think that they could defy God and get away with it. I remember in 2019, I had the privilege of visiting Scotland. And Scotland, unlike 
London that was bombed during the Second World War in Edinburgh, the capital of Scotland. It was never bombed, and as you look at the skyline there, walking through the streets, all you see is steeples, churches, cathedrals. Oh, for centuries, the West has had a good notion, an awareness of the God of the Bible, yet he thinks he could defy God and get away with it. And oftentimes it seems to be, it appears as if he can get away with it. On the surface, it seems as if those who defy God and rely on their own human wisdom and strength are doing all right and getting away with it. Like the Philistines, that they have the Ark of the Covenant of God, they have their trophy, and they are taking it home. They have captured the God of Israel. They think they could get away with this. So whether it's Israel who is presuming upon God or the Philistines who are in total defiance of God, my point is this, nothing has changed in the heart of man. Which as I was meditating on this, I was thinking on Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So I want us to see this morning how this text not just highlights the realities of our sinfulness, but I, I want us to understand this truth from this text. And it is this. It is the main idea that I want you to take home with you. And it is this. That man's defiance will have to face the heavy hand of God and acknowledge that only he is God. This should be appearing on the screen. Man's defiance will have to face the heavy hand of God and acknowledge the o- that only he is God. As we look at the text before us, let us be further reminded of what happened as a result of Israel bringing the Ark of the Covenant out to the battlefield. The Lord severely afflicted them. They had just lost 30,000 men, a bloodbath. The high priest Eli, his sons, have all died that same day. But the most terrible thing that has happened is the fact that the Lord's presence was no longer with them. The glory of God had departed. It was this reality that Eli, upon hearing it, fell back and broke his neck. It is this reality that his daughter-in-law, who is pregnant, upon hearing the news that God is no longer among them, begins to have these birth pains and gives birth and in her anguish, all she could say before she dies is to name her child Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. Israel has lost everything. The ark was vital to their relationship with God. It was the place that God had deemed where he would be physically present. The ark was the symbol of God's commitment to Israel and how he would provide forgiveness through a sacrifice. But now the ark is in the hands of the Philistines. So chapter 5, we see a shift. We leave Israel and the battlefield of Ebenezer, and now we are told what happens among the Philistines as they, in their mind, in their defiance, thinking they conquered God, how God then reveals to them his glory. 
So what we find in the first five verses of this chapter is, is the humiliation of Dagon. Dagon is humiliated. We're told that the ark was first taken to Ashdod, one of the five cities of the Philistines. Perhaps it was the one that was nearest to Ebenezer. And there the ark was taken. And the Philistines did what they've always done when they fought in battles and they beat other nations. They took their gods with them. And so with their trophy, the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it into the temple of Dagon. Dagon was their most powerful and greatest of gods. Dagon was the god of vegetation and of fertility. And the text tells us that the Ark of the Covenant was put next to Dagon in Dagon's temple, to be a symbol over the defeat that they had over the God of Israel. Now, the God of Israel is their prisoner, and he is subject to Dagon, and they're loving it. And they're loving it, they were all about it, they controlled the situation in verse 2, we find how much in the verbs we see how much they had power they thought over the ark, over the God of Israel, where it says that they took the ark, brought it into the house of Dagon, they set it up. They were all about it. They were puffed up. This was the God of Israel, the God that even the Egyptians could not defeat. The God that Jericho could not defeat. The God that Israel, who had fought in the land of Canaan as they conquered so much land. Sure, they lost a few battles here and there, but overall, they were victorious. No one had taken over their God, the ark. Yet here they were. They had the souvenir. They had the God of Israel, and they were happy to have them. Because the Philistines, like all pagan religions, they are polytheistic. They're all about having as many gods as possible. Oh, this is how humanity is. We, we, we want gods to serve us. The idea of, of one God who is ruler over all that every man is subject to, who does according to his will and purposes, that exists for his glory and not man's glory, that is completely rejected. A man is out to manipulate God, to control God, to use God, and if I have many gods who could supplement and complement what the other is deficient in, then maybe I could get the things that I want. It is the, the, it is the same thing happening in the day of the Philistines here in First Samuel 5, what happens even today. The idea of one true, living, sovereign God who is over all is rejected for the polytheistic, plural gods who could serve the will of man. So therefore, it's Christianity who is hated in our world because of its claims. But yet, Hinduism and Buddhism and Greek mythology, 
because of the fact that there's many ways to ascend to the presence of God. Or even atheism, who, although they say that they serve no gods, they serve a plurality of gods, the self, science, money, philosophy, whatever it may be, man attempting to find for himself glory through the means of manipulating the gods. But when you say that the God of the Bible is the one and only true God, that he is the sovereign one who demands all sinners to give an account that God is not tolerated. But this is not what the Philistines were doing. They were not putting the ark and the God of Israel on trial. They were not sentencing him to death. They were not making a bonfire to destroy the ark to finally say we have destroyed the God of Israel. On the contrary, they were excited to have this God who they could wield his power to bring him into the temple of Dagon to be not better than Dagon but one of their gods under Dagon so that then this God of Israel could also serve them. And so they set it up in the temple likely about to sell uh, uh, tickets in the city for all the citizens of Ashdod to come and see the Ark of the Covenant, the God of Israel. And they call it a night, and when they come in in the morning, Dagon Dagon was lying face down. Face down on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And I'm sure they were asking some questions. But regardless, they needed to fix the situation. They needed to remedy this quickly. So verse 3 tells us that they took Dagon and stood him back up. They put him back in his place. And as you read this, you almost see the humor in the writer, how repeatedly he's naming Dagon. He's saying the name Dagon. Like if, if he's saying, it doesn't matter what he is or what he looks like or if he's standing up or sitting down, he's Dagon. This is all you got in your God. I think he wants us to enjoy how silly this is, how pathetic this scene is. Because he falls down, he can't help himself. It's like a scene from Weekend at Bernie's. Stand that guy up, sit him down. They pick him up, they put him back, and say, who knows how big this statue is, this idol. But the point of the author is that Dagon, he can't help himself. He's a useless idol. Like every idol is, like every false god is. Isaiah 46 speaks of this. When Isaiah says they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one calls out to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. Oh no, the the reality that Dagon fell face down and could not help himself, that in the morning they had to come and pick him up and the curiosity of why did this happen? But okay, it happened. Let's set him back up. Let's stand Bernie, I, I, I mean Dagon up again. And they go to bed and the next morning, Dagon has fallen again. He's face down. But now his head is severed. His hands are cut off. And the writer speaks of Dagon as just being a torso. The torso Dagon. This is his condition. The great God of 
the Philistines has fallen over. Poor Dagon, let's pick him up. No head, no hands, just a torso, but Dagon, let's stand him up. Let's grab the head and try to position it, and let's try to put on the hands and, and make something of our God. And the whole process, Dagon is helpless. He can't speak. He can't act. Whatever you had, the author's saying, that's Dagon. Whatever was left. How pathetic. We laugh. But for the Philistines, they were horrified. This marked their nation. Because verse 5 tells us that the priests of Dagon, for generations after, all who would enter the house of Dagon would not tread on the, th on the threshold to this day. That day was noticeable. How because of the Ark of the Covenant that was brought into the temple and put next to Dagon, how Dagon was humiliated. Now, notice in God's purposes what he is doing. His glory has left Israel. Israel is in mourning. He has departed from their presence. And now in Ashdod, the Philistines, these pagans are experiencing the glory of God. Dagon was humiliated. And then we find in the text starting in verse 6 that God will judge. That his heavy hand, four times, it speaks of the hand of the Lord upon the people of the Philistines. No more games. No more defying God. This humiliation of Dagon was just the beginning of what was to come upon the Philistines. Judgment was coming. And the author speaks of this heavy hand of the Lord. Do not miss this play on words. Dagon's hands were severed, useless, worthless, but now the hand of the Lord would come upon them. And like so many today would want to describe just simply a God who is only love, relatable. He's like a guy amongst us. Verse 6 says something about who the one true living God is. To those who face him, to sinners who have no way of being sheltered from his holiness and glory. Verse 6 tells us that God is terrifying. Verse 6, and the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he, God, terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both in the city of Ashdod and all its territories. No area escaped. God is terrifying. He terrified them and he afflicted them to the point that these pagans, this, these Philistines, they understood what was happening here. They understood that the God of Israel was greater than them, more powerful than them. But they also acknowledged in verse 7 that the God of Israel was greater than their God, Dagon. And like the elders of Israel who had gathered after the loss of that first battle, who had put together their human reasoning, their wisdom, to decide to bring the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and, pre and bring it into the battlefield, the worst decision that they would have made. So now the Philistines have convened 
and these five cities of the Philistines that each had their own lord, like their own governor. They, get, they got together, they convened like somewhat of a United Nations. Like, okay, we need to talk about and discuss what are we going to do with this ark of God, of the Lord, the God of Israel. What do we do with the God of Israel? The, the Lord of Ashdod said, send it back. We have suffered greatly. It practically killed us. But the other lords, just maybe, maybe they were like, hey, you know what? I would have loved for that thing to come to our city. I don't know why I ended up in Ashton, but these guys failed. Can we have a crack at it? Send it to Gath. Maybe we could, maybe there's something happening in Ashton where they just can't. Send it to Gath because maybe there we could still wield its power, harness the power of the God of Israel. I could just imagine the curiosity over this ark, the rumors that were going around, the tabloids, the Ashdod Times publishing articles about this ark, about the God of Israel among us. If Twitter was around, it would be blowing up as this sideshow would go from Ashdod now to Gath. The ark of the covenant of God, the God of Israel is being moved, relocated into this new city to see if somehow we could control and somehow we could get away with defying the God of Israel. But verse 9 tells us what happened. The hand of the Lord came upon them and caused great panic. Both the young and the old were stricken with tumors. And what we don't read is that immediately that there was another crisis meeting from the lords of the Philistines. But they did know that they needed to get rid of it. But they were unwilling still to send it back. They were unwilling to send it back to Israel just yet. It was still too powerful. It was still too desirable. If we could just control this God, we weren't willing to give it up yet. We just needed to figure it out. They wanted a relationship, a lording relationship over this God. It's like that scene from the movie Dumb and Dumber. What are the chances of a God like you and a nation like us ending up together? <laughs> Not good. Not good like one in a hundred? No, I say more like one in a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> Let's send that thing to Ekron. Just maybe, just maybe, before we all die, we can subdue this God, control this God. And by now, the ark, the God of Israel is like a hot potato that no one wants to grab, that no one wants but still desires. We want to keep playing. And at this point, they just, without convening, without having another assembly of the lords of the Philistines, what city do we send it now to? They just send it directly to Ekron. And by now, Ekron is, I, I think they're no longer saying, I think we can handle it. Send it our way. On the contrary, the text tells us, pretend that they're freaking out. They cried out. 
As soon as they arrived, they cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of God to kill us and our people. This was worse for them than a hurricane coming, a tornado coming, worse than COVID-19, worse than the bubonic plague. This was the God of the universe, the one true living God who they have understood they cannot control, who is all-powerful and with full strength has stricted, has stricken, afflicted them to the point of panic. What happened to the Philistines? These were the same Philistines that when Israel brought the ark out of the tabernacle into the battlefield in Ebenezer, they heard about it, that the ark was out, and they were initially terrified. But eventually, they told themselves, be men and fight. And they fought against Israel and conquered Israel. What, what happened to those men? Oh, they were confronted with the glory of God. We see the flow of the text, how although these men had defied God, and thought that they could somehow get away with it. We find in the text that Dagon, their greatest god, was humiliated. We find that God's heavy hand of judgment was upon them to the point now that they needed to recognize and surrender to the only one true God. Verse 11, finally, we find that the lords of the Philistines decide to gather together once again. This time, they were not planning to somehow figure out a way to keep the ark, to wield its power, to control and manipulate this all-powerful God. The only thing that they had left was to surrender. They acknowledged and recognized the glory of God when those who had not died from the tumors and the affliction no longer were crying out to Dagon. But the text says their eyes were set to heaven. They were now crying out to God for mercy. And their decision was not one of repentance because what they decided to do was remove this God from among us. Send it back to where it came from because we do not want to deal with it. Still, man, trying to get away with it. Destroyed by the one true living God. This is like the defiance of Japan against the U.S. when they bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. How stupid they were to wake up this giant as a result of their bravery, quote-unquote, the U.S. brought upon them terrible panic. When for the first time in world history, two atom bombs were used in retaliation. On August 6, 1945, Hiroshima was bombed with an atomic bomb that killed instantly 129,000 people. Just a few days later, on August 9, 1945, Nagasaki was bombed and 226,000 people died. The devastation and terror was so great that on September 2nd, 1945, not even a month later, the brave Japanese who at some point attacked Pearl Harbor 
were now standing on the decks of the USS Missouri, and General Douglas MacArthur was there with a Japanese foreign minister and a Japanese general to sign the agreement of unconditional surrender. This was the Philistines' reality, but how much more? They weren't facing another nation. They were facing the God of the universe, who upon their presuming or defying of God, thinking that they could capture him and control him and wield his power, they were plummeted and devastated by God to such a degree that all they could do is surrender. Just like they put Dagon back in place, back in his place, they needed to send the Ark of the Covenant back to its place. Man thinks that he could defy God and get away with it, but his defiance will have to face the heavy hand of God and acknowledge that only he is God. This is true in their day, and it's still true in our day. Three ideas I want us to take home with us. Three truths from this text. If you're writing, if you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, every other God you serve is powerless and not worth entertaining. Every other God you serve is powerless and not worth entertaining. Can I ask you this morning, what are the gods you serve? Who are the gods you serve? At what altars are you sacrificing and worshiping? You might say, well, I don't worship any other god. I am a Christian. Listen, anything you place over God, anything you put your confidence in over God, anything you value or trust in more than God is another God you worship. Anything you hope would save you is idolatry. It is the worship of another God. And whenever you depend and trust in something else for your salvation, for your well-being, the tendency is, the default is, is to worship that thing. If you're not a believer here today, if you're not a Christian, you are enslaved, the Bible says, to this way of life. Pursuing after gods, pursuing after the things of this world, worshiping at the altars of all these different gods that will all prove themselves to be worthless. The road that of their apparent provision and safety, that road, that pavement ends at some point. And it will fail. But if you are a Christian here today, you're not enslaved to the pursuit of other gods and enslaved to sin. You've been freed from it. If the, if the Son of God has set you free, you are free indeed. But in the flesh, you are tempted towards that way of life. Tempted to worship at other altars, 
As Calvin would say, our hearts are idol factories, always looking to displace our worship from the one true living God who has proven himself to us and, and he gave us his son Jesus to forgive us of our sins so that we might have an eternity with him. Our flesh begins to look at other gods and we begin to worship at other altars. We are tempted to do so. Therefore, what we need is to guard our hearts, to stay in God's word, to be among God's people, to be held accountable. Why? Because this flesh is weak. The old man is near. We need to be reminded that if we know Jesus, if we know the Lord, if we have received the good news of the gospel, we need no other God. We have all we need. Because the battle that needed to be fought was fought and victoriously won. So every other God you serve is powerless and not worth entertaining. Secondly, God is terrible and the idea of defying him is the greatest lie ever told. God is terrible and the idea of defying him is the greatest lie ever told. And by terrible, I don't mean this in, in any other way other than terrifying. He is holy, he is just, and sinners cannot stand to be in his presence because they will surely die. The first great awakening in America in 1741 began through a sermon by a well-known pastor, theologian, Jonathan Edwards, the last of the Puritans. And he wrote this sermon, he delivered this sermon that brought upon his listeners a lot of panic. God is a God who has a heavy hand upon us and we must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in his sermon, he says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of pure eyes and to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes and the most hateful venomous serpents is in ours. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead, and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf. And your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and your best contrivance and all of your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a fallen rock. You will have to one day, every man will have to one day deal with the Lord. We hear people say all the time, well, I'm, I, I'm living my life. I want to be true to myself. I want to do me. I want to get to the end of my life and say, 
I did it my way. Listen, one day you will give an account to the one who has created you. One day you won't be doing you and you won't be doing it your way because the leash of God's patience would no longer be there. Your true self will be exposed and you along with all humanity will have to face the holiness of God. And you know what will be of that day? Every knee will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. On that day, Dagon will not save you. Buddha will not save you. Humanism won't save you. Science won't save you. Philosophy won't save you. You will need God himself to save you. And yet the father of lies, the devil, will want to convince you all the days of your life that you could defy God and get away with it. That you, that you could defy God and not face the heavy hand of God. But one day, you will have to give an account because God is, the greatest lie ever told is that God will not deal with sin. Third idea and last that we see from this text is that God's greatest victory comes through what looks like his greatest defeat. God's greatest victory came through what looks like his greatest defeat. As we look at this text, we can't forget the overarching theme of the book. God is going to save his people. God is going to be true to his promise to save rebels, sinners who defy him. God is going to call a people to himself and has intentionally departed from Israel put them in despair, removed his glory because God is at work in their lives causing them to consider him and repent of their sin and turn to him like they've had in the past. But in the vicious cycle of them rebelling against God, then repenting and honoring him and then again rebelling, God is at work throughout redemptive history to once and for all conquer the sin in man, so that man could have a relationship, a saving relationship with God. And what we find in this text is that what seemed to be perceived as God's greatest defeat, no one had captured the Ark of the Covenant. No one had thought we have conquered the God of Israel. What seemed to be the greatest defeat of God resulted for the Philistines a demonstration of his glory. They thought they had him. They thought they captured him. They put him in the temple to be put on display, to be like in a museum for all to see. The wooden box of the covenant of God that represented the very presence of God was in their mind defeated and put to public shame to be under the authority of Dagon, their God. 
and what seemed to be his greatest defeat. It's just a picture of what would be his greatest victory. As God is working out his redemptive purposes, how one day in Jerusalem, there would be a man who everyone would defy. Everyone would defy the Son of God, Jesus, and seemingly think that they have gotten away with it. They will capture the Son of God who came to save sinners. They will judge him and beat him and nail him to a cross and put him to public shame, put him on display for all the Jews and the Romans to see, to be there under the authority of the greater God, Rome. But that day, on that Good Friday, all the world's defiance was placed upon Jesus. On that day, he took the wrath of God against our sin. On that day, when he died, he was buried in a tomb. And on the third day, with a display that is much more powerful than the toppling over of Dagon and the cutting off of his hands and the severing of his head, on the third day, he was risen from the dead to fulfill the promises of Genesis that he will crush the serpent's head. On that day, Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb to what seemed to be the greatest defeat would end up being the greatest victory. He would conquer death and hell, and no more would man need to face the wrath of Almighty God, that there would be a way out from the terrifying panic that will ensue upon everyone who attempts to defy God and think that they could get away with it. So for those who would acknowledge their defiance, for those who would understand, who no longer think that they could defy God and get away with it. For those who would finally acknowledge that he is the God who we cannot wield his power, all we could do is surrender and submit to him. Who would repent and believe that that all-powerful God is in the business of saving sinners. And how he, out of mercy and compassion and grace, would send his son into this world to live the life that we were called to live, to live the sinless life, to then become the perfect sinless sacrifice that would appease the wrath of God against sin and that, what, and that what, what, what we would need to do is to believe by faith and trust in Jesus Christ and that we then would be spared from that wrath, that we would become children of God, sons and daughters of God. What an amazing story. That through that most greatest apparent defeat would come the most greatest of victories. That we could be spared from the wrath to come. I want you to take with you this morning the reality. Be reminded and let it sting. We think, man thinks that he could defy God and get away with it. But his defiance would have to face the heavy hand of God and acknowledge that only he is God. The question becomes, will the heavy hand of God's wrath be placed on Jesus for you, or would it be placed directly on you when you face the Lord in eternity? We're here because we have a savior. 
We're here because we have a God who provided a rescuer, one who would shelter us, protect us from God's holiness and wrath, who would then take upon himself our unrighteousness and cover us with his so that then we would have access to the throne room of grace and eternity with God forever and ever and ever. This is why we're here. For nothing else than to be in awe of who God is, to acknowledge his holiness and his grace found in Jesus Christ.